Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. The title of this episode is, What a Mess. As is often the case, we start by backing up and reviewing material we've already covered so we can launch into the next leg in our journey of church history. Anglo-Saxon missionaries to Germany had received the support of Charles Martel, a founder of the Carolingian dynasty. Martel supported these missions because of his desire to expand his rule eastward into Bavaria. The Pope was grateful for his support and for Charles's victory over the Muslims at the Battle of Tours. But Martel fell afoul of papal favor when he confiscated church lands. At first, the church consented to his seizing of property to produce income so he could stave off the Muslim threat. But once that threat was dealt with, he refused to return the lands. Adding insult to injury, Martel ignored the Pope's request for help against the Lombards who were taking control of a good chunk of Italy. Martel denied assistance, well, because at the time the Lombards were his allies. But a new era began with the reign of Martel's heir, Pippin, or as he's better known, Pepin III. Pepin was raised in the monastery of St. Denis near Paris. He and his brother were helped by the church leader Boniface to carry out a major reform of the Frank Church. These reforms of the clergy and church organization brought about a renewal of religious and intellectual life and made possible the educational revival associated with the greatest of the Carolingian rulers, Charlemagne and his Renaissance. In 751, Pepin persuaded Pope Zachary to allow Boniface to anoint him king of the Franks, supplanting the Merovingian dynasty. Then, another milestone in church-state relations passed with Pope Stephen II appealing to Pepin for aid against the Lombards. The Pope placed Rome under the protection of Pepin and recognized him and his sons as protectors of the Romans. As we've recently seen, all of this church-state alliance came to a focal point with the crowning of Charlemagne as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in AD 800. For some time, the popes in Rome had been looking for a way to loosen their ties to the Eastern Empire and Constantinople. Religious developments in the East provided the popes an opportunity to finally break free. The iconoclastic controversy that was dominating Eastern affairs gave the popes one more thing to express their dissatisfaction with. We'll take a closer look at that controversy later. For now, it's enough to say that the Eastern Emperor Leo III banned the use of icons as images of religious devotion in AD 726. The supporters of icons ultimately prevailed, but only after a century of bitter and at times violent dispute. Pope Gregory II rejected Leo's edict banning icons and flaunted his disrespect for the emperor's authority. Gregory's pompous and scathing letter to the emperor was long on bluff, but dramatic statement of his rejection of secular rulers meddling in church affairs. Pope Gregory wrote, quote, Listen, dogmas are not the business of emperors, but of pontiffs. Unquote. The reign of what was regarded by the West as a heretical dynasty in the East gave the Pope the excuse that he needed to separate from the East and find a new, devoted, and orthodox protector. The alliance between the papacy and the Carolingians represents the culmination of that quest and opened a new and momentous chapter in the history of European medieval Christianity. In response to Pope Stephen's appeal for help against the Lombards, Pepin recovered the church's territories in Italy and gave them to the Pope, an action known as the Donation of Pepin. 
This confirmed the legal status of the Papal States. At about the same time, the Pope's claim to the rule of Italy and independence from the Eastern Roman Empire was reinforced by the appearance of one of the great forgeries of the Middle Ages, called the Donation of Constantine. This spurious document claimed that Constantine the Great had given Rome and the western part of the empire to the Bishop of Rome when he moved the capital of the empire to the east. The donation was not exposed as a forgery until the 15th century. The concluding act in the Pope's attempt to free themselves from Constantinople came on Christmas Day of 800, when Pope Leo III revived the empire in the West by crowning Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor. It's rather humorous, as one wag put it. The Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman and can scarcely be called an empire. Charlemagne's chief scholar was the British-born Alcuin, who had been master of the cathedral school in York. He was courted by Charlemagne to make his capital at Aachen on the border between France and Germany, Europe's new center of education and scholarship. Alcuin did just that. If the school at Aachen didn't plant the seeds that would later flower in the Renaissance, it certainly prepared the soil for them. Alcuin profoundly influenced the intellectual, cultural, and religious direction of the Carolingian Empire, as the 300-some extant letters that he wrote reveal. His influence is best seen in the manuscripts at the School of Tours, where he later became abbot. His influence is also demonstrated in his educational writings, his revision of the biblical text, commentaries, and the completion of his version of church liturgy. He standardized spelling and writing, reformed missionary practice, and contributed to the organizing of church regulations. Alcuin was the leading theologian in the struggle against the heresy of adoptionism. Adoptionists said that Jesus was simply a human being who got adopted and made a son. Alcuin was a staunch defender of Christian orthodoxy and the authority of the church, the preeminence of the Roman bishop, and of Charlemagne's sacred position as emperor. He died in 804. The time at which Alcuin lived certainly needed the reforms that he brought, and he was the perfect agent to bring them. From the palace school at Aachen, a generation of his students went out to head monastic and cathedral schools throughout the land. Even though Charlemagne's empire barely outlived its founder, the revival of education and religion associated with he and Alcuin brightened European culture throughout the bleak and chaotic period that followed. This Carolingian Renaissance turned to classical antiquity and early Christianity for its models. The problem is, there was only one Western scholar who still knew Greek, the Irishman John Scotus Erigena. Still, the manuscripts produced during this era form the base from which modern historians gain a picture of the past. It was these classical texts, translated from Greek into Latin, that fueled the later European Renaissance. The intellectual vigor stimulated by the Carolingian Renaissance and the political dynamism of the revived empire stimulated new theological activity. There was discussion about the continuing iconoclastic problem in the East. Political antagonism between the Eastern and the Carolingian emperors led to an attack by theologians in the West on the practices and beliefs of the Orthodox Church in the East. These controversial works on the, quote, errors of the Greeks flourished during the 9th century as a result of the Phocian Schism. In 858, Byzantine Emperor Michael III deposed the Patriarch Ignatius I of Constantinople, replacing him with a lay scholar named Phocius I, also known as Phocius the Great. 
the now-deposed Ignatius appealed to Pope Nicholas I to restore him, while Photius asked the Pope to recognize his appointment. The Pope ordered the restoration of Ignatius, and relations between the East and the West sunk even further. The issue ended in 867 when Pope Nicholas died and Photius was deposed. Latin theologians also criticized the Eastern Church for its different method of deciding the date for Easter, the difference in the way clergy cut their hair, and the celibacy of priests. The Eastern Church allowed priests to marry while requiring monks to be celibate, whereas the Western Church required celibacy of both. Another major doctrinal debate was the filioque controversy, and we briefly touched on that in an earlier episode. Before I get a barrage of emails, there's debate among scholars over the pronunciation of filioque. Some say filioque, others filioque. So, you know, take your pick. The point is, the controversy dealt with the wording of the Nicene Creed as related to the Holy Spirit. The original, que- the original creed is said that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. A bit later, the Western Church altered the wording a bit so as to affirm the equality of the Son of God with the Father. So they said the Spirit proceeded from both Father and Son. Filioque is Latin for and the Son, thus giving the name of the controversy. The Eastern Church saw this addition as a dangerous tampering with the original creed and refused to accept it while the filioque clause became a standard part of what was considered normative doctrine in the West. Another major discussion arose over the question of predestination. A Carolingian monk named Gottschalk, who had studied Augustine's theology carefully, was the first to teach double predestination, the belief that some people are predestined to salvation while others are destined to damnation. He was tried and condemned for his views by two synods and finally imprisoned by the Archbishop of Reims. Gottschalk died 20 years later, holding his views to the end. The other major theological issue of the Carolingian era concerned the Lord's Supper. The influential abbot of Corby wrote a treatise titled On the Body and Blood of the Lord. This was the first clear statement of a doctrine of the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the communion elements, later called the doctrine of transubstantiation, an issue that will become a heated point in the debate between the Roman Church and the Reformers. The reforms of King Pepin and Pope Boniface focused attention on priests. It was clear to all that clergy ought to lead lives beyond reproach. That synod after synod during the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries had to make such a major issue of this demonstrated the need for reform. Among the violations warned against were the rejection of celibacy, gluttony, drunkenness, tawdry relationships with women, hunting, carrying arms, and frequenting taverns. Monastic developments at this time were significant. The emphasis was on standardization and centralization. Between 813 and 17, a revised Benedictine rule was adopted for the whole of the Carolingian Empire. Another Benedict, a monk from Burgundy, was responsible for an ultra-strict regimen. Charlemagne's successor, Louis the Pious, appointed Benedict the overseer of all monasteries in his realm, and a few years later his revised Benedictine rule was made obligatory for all monasteries, sadly with little long-term effect. When Louis succeeded Charlemagne, the Pope was able to regain his independence, following a long domination by the Emperor. 
The imperial theocracy of Charlemagne's reign would have yielded a state church, as already existed in the East. But the papacy stressed the superiority of the spiritual power over the secular. This was reinforced by the forgery known as the Donation of Constantine, with its emphasis on papal preeminence in the governing of the empire, not just the church. In the middle of the ninth century, priests at Rhymes produced another remarkable forgery, the false decretals. Accomplished with great inventiveness, the decretals were designed to provide a basis in law which protected the rights of bishops. They included the bogus donation of Constantine and became a central part of the canon of medieval law. It shored up papal claims to supremacy in church affairs over secular authority. The first pope to make use of the false decretals was Nicholas I. He recognized the danger of a church dominated by civil rulers and was determined to avert this by stressing that the church's government was centered on Rome, not Constantinople, and certainly not in some lesser city like Milan or Ravenna in Italy. From the late 9th until the mid-11th century, Western Christendom was beset by a host of major challenges that left the region vulnerable. The Carolingian Empire fragmented, leaving no major military power to defend Western Europe. Continued attacks by Muslims in the south, a fresh wave of attacks by the Magyars in the east, and incessant raids by the Norsemen all over the empire turned the shards of the empire into splinters. One contemporary lamented, quote, we once had a king, now we have kinglets, unquote. For many Western Europeans, it seemed the end of the world was at hand. The popes no longer had Carolingian rulers as protectors, so the papacy became increasingly involved in the power struggles among the nobility for the rule of Italy. Popes became partisans of one political faction or another, sometimes willingly, other times coerced. But the cumulative result was spiritual and moral decline. For instance, Pope Stephen VI took vengeance on the preceding pope by having his body disinterred and brought before a synod where it was propped up in a chair for trial. Following conviction, the body was thrown into the Tiber. Then within a year, Stephen himself was overthrown. He was strangled while in prison. There was a near complete collapse of civil order in Europe during the 10th century. Church property was ransacked by invaders or fell into the hands of the nobility. Noblemen treated churches and monasteries as their private property to dispose of as they wished. The clergy became indifferent to their duties. Their illiteracy and immorality grew. The 10th century was a genuine dark age, at least as far as the condition of the church was concerned. Without papal protection, popes became helpless playthings for the nobility, who fought to gain control by appointing relatives and political favorites. A chronicle of the German bishop of Cremona paints a graphic picture of sexual debauchery in the church. Though there were incompetent and immoral popes during this time, they continued to be respected throughout the West. Bishoprics and abbeys were founded by laymen after they obtained the approval of the papal court. Pilgrimages to Rome hardly slackened during this age, as Christians visited the sacred sites of the West, the tombs of Peter and Paul, as well as a host of other relics venerated there. At the lowest ebb of the 10th century, during the reign of Pope John XII, from 955 to 64, a major change in Italian politics affected the papacy. An independent and capable German monarchy emerged. This Saxon dynasty began with the election of Henry I, then continued with his son, Otto I, also known as Otto the Great. Otto developed a close relationship with the church in Germany. Bishops and abbots were given the rights and honor of high nobility. 
the church received huge tracts of land. Through this alliance with the church, Otto aimed to forestall the rebellious nobles of his kingdom. But the new spiritual aristocracy created by Otto wasn't hereditary. Bishops and abbots couldn't pass on their privileges to their successors. Favor was granted by the king to whomever he chose. Thus, their loyalty could be counted on more readily. In fact, the German bishops contributed money and arms to help German kings expand in Italy, what is now the regions of East Germany and Poland. Otto helped raise the papacy out of the quagmire of Italian politics. His entrance into Italian affairs was a fateful decision. He marched south into Italy to marry Adelaide of Burgundy and declared himself king of the Lombards. Ten years later, he again marched south at the invitation of Pope John XII. In February of 962, the Pope tried a renewal of the Holy Roman Empire by crowning Otto and Adelaide in St. Peter's. But the price paid by the Pope for Otto's support was another round of interference in church affairs. For the next 300 years, each new German monarch followed up his election by making a march to Rome to be crowned as emperor. But at this point, it wasn't so much popes who made emperors as it was emperors who made popes. And when a pope ran afoul of the ruler, he was conveniently labeled anti-pope then disposed to be replaced by the next guy. It was the age of musical chairs in Rome. Whoever grabs the papal chair when the music stops gets to sit. But when the emperor instructs the band to play again, who's ever in the chair has to stand, and the game starts all over again. Lest you think that I'm overstating the case, in 963, Otto returned to Rome, convened a synod which found Pope John guilty of a list of sordid crimes and deposed him. In his place, they chose a layman who received all of his ecclesiastical orders in a single day to become Pope Leo VIII. He managed to sit in the Pope's chair less than a year before the music started all over again. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.